Well, so glad you're here this morning, and we're going to be continuing in this series called Blindsided, working through the story of Job, and really one of the more powerful stories from the Old Testament for the last three weeks we've been exploring his story. And last week, you might remember, I talked about how important it is, we find even in our own life, to have trusted counselors, people in different arenas in our life that we can go to and ask for help, whether it's taxes, I've got a guy, whether it's our finances, I've got a guy. We have people that we trust with good counsel in our lives. One that I forgot to mention was a good mechanic. Anybody appreciate that in your life? When you have somebody that you can actually trust that you know is not ripping you off, or like that is a gift in anybody's life as far as counsel. And even though sometimes they tell you things that you don't want to hear, you value their counsel because, man, I, I appreciate a straight shooter. Well, I have a, a, a guy in uh, Agora. His name is Greg Ekman. He owns a shop uh, close to the highway called Achy Breaky. And I had my wife's truck in for uh, getting some uh, oil change last week. And here's the, the counsel that he gave. You guys want to see our, our text dialogue here for a second? Here's the counsel that he gave me uh, for the oil change. The Acura is done. I would suggest buying some bars of soap and putting them under the hood and maybe a rat trap because there's a live rat under the hood. We tried to get it, but had no luck. Are you serious? Crazy. Yes, he names it. Bob the rat lives on. I tried water, firecrackers, brake cleaner, but he's like a magician and keeps on hiding. And then the part that's probably the most concerning He's a good size one. He could double as a cat. <laughs> That's the kind of counsel you don't necessarily like to get, but you need to get it because why? A rat under your hood can cause all kinds of havoc. Like that, That's not a good thing. I, we didn't have a lot of that issue in Chicago. They froze to death. But here, they, they, they literally, this is a problem. Anybody ever have a rodent in your car? Here, where's a... Okay, thanks. That makes me feel better. Some are like, I don't want to admit it. Uh, but, but, but here, sometimes a straight shooter is exactly what we need. We, we don't need somebody to beat around the bush. We don't need somebody to kind of mince words. We don't need them to kind of soften the blow. We just need people that, that shoot straight with us. And I would suggest this morning that this gentleman by the name of Elihu is exactly that guy in Job's life. If you remember from their story thus far, Job has experienced unbelievable trials and suffering, just t terrible torment. He's had three knucklehead friends that have given him just terrible advice, and that we've had that for a number of chapters that we've looked at, and finally we're going about to experience a straight shooter that's willing to point out that Job has a few rats under the hood. Let me pray as we dive in. God, thank you so much for this chance to be together, and thank you for your word that explains and helps us make sense out of things that are, would be otherwise plexing. I just pray that you would do exactly that this morning, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you'd give us just a little bit better look at the rationale behind the things we go through, some of the things that we can't make sense out of. I ask that you'd speak to us. I ask that you'd also meet people exactly where they're at. I know there's folks in this room that are in the middle of their Job experience where they've been blindsided and are really struggling, I ask that you'd meet them, that you'd encourage them, that you'd draw close to the brokenhearted. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. 
So if you wouldn't mind uh, turning with me in your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, that's great. If you don't have one, we have one in the chairs in front of you. We're in Job, actually looking at chapter 32 to start with, where we're introduced for the first time to this Elihu character. As I mentioned last week, we just finished up with Job's three friends giving bad counsel, and Job responds, basically defending himself. If you remember his defense, he was trying to bring up the idea that, man, I'm innocent. If if suffering comes because of sin, I am I am guilt free. Like I'm this is I'm I'm wrongfully suffering was his big idea. At the end of that, the three friends realize that there's nothing more they could say. Look at verse 1 of chapter 32. He says, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. In other words, they didn't see really any more they could say. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite. How cool is that? I think that's a good new family name. Name a little Buzzite. Uh, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in ears, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand that what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. See a lot going on there. We're first introduced to this new character in the story, and we don't exactly know what relationship he had with Job, if there even was one, if he's just a bystander that's been observing this dialogue between him and his three friends. But either way, he takes this moment of potentially awkward silence to speak up. It's like, hey, if you guys are, are done, then I'm going to add my two cents into the mix as to the reasoning for why you're experiencing this suffering. He makes a couple good observations. The first one is this, and maybe you've seen this in your own life, that age doesn't guarantee wisdom. Age doesn't guarantee wisdom. Just because somebody's been on this planet a long time does not necessarily make them wise. Often it does, but sometimes, as he's pointing out, that age doesn't guarantee wisdom. Have you guys experienced that before with people you've talked to maybe in their senior years? You're like, oh, you should be a little further along in your thinking maybe than, than you are. I was actually, we have, our, uh, we have our meal program that we do once a month, and we do this thing um, where we, where we pro- provide a meal, but beforehand we do a Bible study devotional. Instead of me guessing of topics that the folks that are there might want to uh, talk about, I go around and just ask them, hey, what are some topics you'd like us to address and see what God's word points to as it relates to that? Have some great conversations. The majority of them, regardless of age, have some uh, really great questions that they bring up that then we tackle in future devotions. Well, this one gentleman I go up to and looked real stately and very intelligent and a little bit, uh, a little bit further along in years, and I'm like, oh, this guy's going to have a good question. And he kind of looks at me after I ask, well, what would you like to talk about? It's like, well... He says, 
Have you ever considered, have you ever considered why you wear synthetic rather than cotton? I'm like, really? Like, uh, you have the opportunity to ask any question about anything, and we'll, we'll look what God's word is, and, and you're going to ask about whether I wear synthetic or cotton? Like, no, I haven't thought about that, nor do I care about that. You see, because just because we're further along in years doesn't guarantee we're asking the right questions. Doesn't guarantee that we're asking the right questions. And in this case, he says, he makes a wonderful observation. The person, the source of our wisdom Look at it in the text there. Is because he says the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. The breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. Unless we're getting our counsel from God and his word, then we're just bound on our limited experience and limited views on life. So he's saying because of the spirit working inside of us, and that's so true for us as well, it's the spirit that gives us the wisdom that we're looking for. So he makes that observation. Then he goes on to see that he's really upset. He's really fired up. It says that he burned with anger. You guys have uh, anything that's been causing you to burn with anger lately? Anybody here have a hard time when you're listening to people with foolish arguments not joining in? Anybody else have a hard time? Anybody spend any time on Facebook in the last couple weeks and had trouble controlling your input. Anybody here on the sidelines, you're like, oh, I so want to engage in this, but I'm not going to. And that's one of the things I would suggest that, that he did a good job of. He didn't join in the banter. He waited patiently for God to speak. So a lot of times the, the, the question that we, we should probably ask with this guy is the question is, should we listen to his advice? Should we listen to his counsel? What would make us listen to him rather than Job's other three friends? I'd suggest there's a couple of things. First, he was fired up about the, the right things. He was fired up. What, what does it point to? It says he was fired up because Job justified himself rather than God. He justified himself rather than God and said, hey, listen, rather than defend yourself, why don't you spend a little bit more time thinking of, hey, God can do as he chooses. Why don't you spend time defending God? He also says, hey, why are you, he points out to his friends that he's fired up with, why are you coming with all these accusations, but you have no basis for your argument? So he's fired up about the right things, but probably the thing that caught my attention more than anything was that why we accept his counsel is because Job doesn't even argue back. You guys ever had somebody give such good input in your life and you're just like, I don't really have a response to that. I don't really have anything I can say back. Let's take a look at this, this verse in Job 33.5. He says to Eli, Eli, Elihu says to Job, he says, Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Does it seem like up until this point that Job has a hard time in, a, in debate? No, he loves to debate this whole process, but instead he remains silent. That might say something about the testimony that he's receiving, potentially having some input that he needed to hear. Also, probably even more important than that, is the fact that God doesn't rebuke him either. 
Elihu, at the end of the, the story, God, we'll get to in a couple weeks, has a chance and rebukes Job's three friends and says, listen, what you've been saying is just craziness, but Elihu, he never mentions anything about what he says. So because of those couple reasons, I would suggest that unlike some different theologians over the years that have thought like, oh, he's just harsh and, 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 uh, and arrogant, I would suggest, no, actually, when you look at what he has to say, he makes some really powerful points. We're going to look at a couple of those points in the remainder of our time here. The first one, he basically rebukes the ones that I addressed last week. Last week, he made the, Job made some different conclusions. He said that I'm innocent, says God is silent, God is unjust, and God is punishing me. Those are all conclusions that Job came up with last week. The first one was this, I am innocent. Elihu says, no, you're not. No, you're not innocent. A lot of times when, when in this argument, they kept coming to this conclusion, hey, you're suffering because of your sin. So Job would say, no, I'm not. I'm innocent. He even went as far to, as to boldly say, if there is a court that I could stand before God, I would be proven as innocent. It's like, whoa, that's, that's, that's feeling pretty good, pretty confident about yourself. And so uh, Elihu's like, no, that, that's, that's false thinking. So instead of arguing the same argument that his friends, are you tracking with me? His friends had said, you're, you're suffering because you're guilty. And instead, Elihu makes another argument and says, you're, you're, you're not suffering because of what you've done, but you are sinning in your suffering. In other words, while you're suffering, you're saying some dumb stuff and coming to some false conclusions. In chapter 33, he points out the fact, the same thing that John Piper concludes, a sediment of pride was stirred up by suffering. A sediment of pride was stirred up by suffering. A lot of times suffering brings out the worst in us. Chapter 33, verse 8 says this, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts me, my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Look at his response to that conclusion. Behold, in this, you are not right. You are not right. Your conclusion that you're innocent is way off track. And I would suggest that's a critical thing for all of mankind. So many people, in order for somebody to embrace their need for God, they have to first come to the conclusion, wait a second, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. If I, if I stood before a court, before Almighty God, he would not say, yeah, you're right. You are, you are innocent. You haven't done anything. You know, like th that wouldn't be the conclusion. So he pushes back on that because until we recognize our need for rescue, we're not going to come to that conclusion I find it interesting, uh, anytime on a, I'm on an airplane, they have all, all of these, the, the person stands in the middle, the stewardess, and she explains all these different safety devices. And uh, some, sometimes I kind of chuckle. I'm like, like, what would it take for me to stick that little raft thing actually around my neck? You know what I mean? And blow it up. You guys seen these things? Well, what would it take for me to pull the thing off the, uh, the, under the chair as a floating device? But then I watch Sully. You guys see this movie? Like, yeah, well, maybe that could happen. But, but really, the point being is until 
somebody comes on the loudspeaker and says, you're going to crash. We're doing a water landing. Like you need help. Grab the stuff you need. Until you hear that message, you're not, there, there's no need for you to even consider that. And that's the same exact thing of how God is using suffering in his life. You need a raft. You need to be rescued. You are not innocent. You are not blameless. I would say that's the key for each one of us to come to that conclusion. Otherwise, when we're here in church, we're singing about grace and forgiveness. You're like, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Until we are fully aware of our sinfulness and our fallen state, otherwise there's nothing to sing about. Grace is no big deal until our sin becomes a big deal. So he had this to root out. He had this rat under the hood that had to come to the surface. He also points out another one. Job suggests that God had been silent through all of this. It's like, where, where was God in this? Why, why isn't he speaking? I, I call out to him and he doesn't reply. And Elihu suggests the opposite, that God speaks during our suffering. Look at chapter 33. Glance over to the next page there. Verses 13 through 19 says, Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man, listen to this verse 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. He's pointing out the idea that God does speak to us in two different ways. One was probably more common then before we had the word of God. He's, he spoke to people through visions. If you read through the Old Testament, you see story after story, account after account of God literally talking to people, whether it's in a dream, whether it's a, in a vision. Either way, God speaks to them directly. He, so he says that's, that's one of the way God speaks to them. But notice the second way that he says that God speaks to us. He speaks to us through our suffering. This is a completely new idea to these guys that, wait a second, in our suffering, and this might be new to us as well, maybe God is trying to say something to us. Have you guys experienced that? Times of pain and difficulty that you're going through and you're like, oh man, but, but through that, God had a word for me. God had a message. I don't know what that message has been in your life. I know there's been seasons that I've been through where God's just reminding me, I'm enough. Trust me, I'm good. I'm going to get you through this. All of these different things that God reminds us in those moments of suffering, God is speaking, whether we acknowledge it or are aware of it or not, he points that out, that God uses suffering to speak to us. I love the quote of a famous British columnist. His name is Malcolm Megaridge. He was known for being a, a famous agnostic for much of his career and much of his days, and then later in life, after exploring all that the world had to offer, eventually submitted his life to Christ. But listen to what he says 
in his quote, he says, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness, listen to this, everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. That's a beautiful conclusion. That God uses the opportunity of suffering. He might not have said, hey, I want to do this to him, but he allows it, and then he uses that opportunity to speak to us, to teach us, to open our eyes to things we hadn't seen before. He's, he's pointing this out. That's how God often speaks to us. Are we listening? Or are we showing up to God with such self-righteous pride? Hey, God, you owe me this answer. Tell me now. Look, look what it says how he responds to that person in chapter 35, verse 12. So this is God's response when man claims in his pride that he owes him an answer. He says, they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. In other words, in our pride, when we're demanding answers from God, here's a little clue to us, God doesn't owe us an explanation about anything. He doesn't owe us anything. As the creator, he doesn't owe that to us. So when we come in our self-righteous pride, God, tell me why you did this. God's like, no. But if you come to God and say, you know what, God? What are you trying to teach me through this? What are you, what are you trying to say to me? How, do, how, how are you working? What, do you, what point are you trying to get across? That humble response, then God has room to operate in our lives. So he dispels this idea that God has not been speaking. He also points out that God is just. That was one of the claims that Job had made. He said, you know what, God's not just in all this. I'm innocent. I'm being wrongly accused. I'm wrongly suffering. And he points out to the fact, no, you're off on that as well. Chapter 34, verse 10, which I was a little bit uh, too zealous to read a moment ago. It says, Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Love the sarcasm, men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. In other words, God is not capable of doing wrong because he's the one that designed it. He's the one that created it. He's the one that determines what is just. What makes mankind think that he gets to decide what is right and wrong or just. Like, what, what kind of arrogance is that? I don't know if there's anybody in here that's a, a hockey fan. Anybody enjoy watching some hockey here and there? Glad there's two of you. Uh, I, you all feel kind of the same as, as me, probably. But can you imagine if you went up to the guy that created hockey and you explained to him, listen, your rules are way off. The whole idea of such a small net, that's stupid. No one ever scores. Like, like, can you imagine if you tried to give this explanation to the guy that made hockey? He'd be like, yeah, but it, it's my game. I came up with it. I designed it. Who are you to question me about my game? I've even given it the name hockey. Like, who are you to question it? And a little bit of that also plays itself out, and God gets to that in his response next week, is that God's just like, listen, I designed this. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the universe? Where were you when I determined its parameters? Where were you? In other words, for us to consider God as unjust, he's the one that determines justice. He defines it. So who are we to think otherwise? He points out to Job. He also shoots down the idea that God was punishing him. Points out that God is not punishing you. So interesting, so many people have that same conclusion thinking that as a Christ follower, God is just this angry God just waiting for us to do the next dumb thing so he can whack us again. Like, oh, there's, there's John, he's doing something stupid again. There's Bob, there's Adam, there's uh, Joe. Like all these different people, he's just like, oh, they're going to do something stupid? Well, then here comes the punishment. But here's the problem with that thinking. If as a Christ follower, someone that's embraced Jesus' work on the cross, if we believe that God is punishing us, then we're not truly embracing Jesus' work on the cross. We're actually, if you think about it, we're belittling it. Well, Jesus covered a lot of my sins, but there still needs to be punishment for this sin. He must have missed that one. Do you see how that belittles the work of Christ on the cross? when we start to think that we're receiving punishment. Now, discipline, that might be a whole nother topic, but punishment, no. That's not what God is doing in the believer's life. And that's what was so hard for his friends to recognize. Their only way of making sense out of trial was, man, it must be God really ticked off, and you're seeing his wrath because of it, because of your actions. And the reminder for us is that Jesus already absorbed God's punishment. We don't need to. We don't need to. There's another way to understand suffering. There's an alternative view that they hadn't even thought of. First off, for the non-believer, this is God's often, God's rescue plan in their life. How often does God wait until somebody's finally on their back after they've been beat up by tragedy, then they see their need for a Savior. Look in chapter 33, verse 26, what comes on the outcome of the person that's on their back. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid me. He has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Recognizing that often in our trials, God uses that as the point where finally man calls out to God. That's something that's obvious. You guys have seen that in your own life. When somebody's going through a really difficult time, that's often when they're at the end of their rope. That's often when they come to the conclusion, oh man, in this tragedy, I need God. That's when they finally, God opens their eyes to recognizing his, their need for him. My son, Chase, there's certain times in a kid's life that you're like, oh man, that's so awesome. Then there's a lot of times that you're like, oh, that was really messed up. My one thing, time my, my son uh, did something last year that we were super proud of. If you remember uh, when they had that bomb threat, you guys remember the bomb threat that somebody called into the school system and uh, all the schools were panicking and they shut down they had all the do you remember the images of the buses all in the courtyard there that they weren't releasing am i making up news or does anybody else remember this uh and so uh so anyway i remember that morning we we're just adrian and i were wrestling oh, do we send chase to school do we send the kids to school and we're kind of going back and forth with that 
And finally, from Willow Elementary, we got the clear that, all right, it's all right, your kids were, think we're in the clear, I think we're safe, but they still gave us the option. And we're like, you know what, I think we're fine, let's go ahead and go to school. So I see Chase there gathering up his stuff in his, in his backpack and getting ready for school. And, uh, and one of the things that he doesn't typically do, but he did that day, is I see him grab his Bible and stick it in his backpack. I'm like, hey, Chase, tell us about that. What, what, what are you thinking? He's like, listen, if anything happens, I need to be ready to preach. I was like, yes, like the, like the, the ultimate like 11-year-old response for my, for my son because even an 11-year-old mind understands this simple truth that during tragedy, during trial, that's when people are the most open to hearing often the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. When they're finally on their back, that's where you can see suffering as an act of love rather than an act of punishment. Other idea there for the believer. So that's for the non-believer. For the believer is another way of thinking about it is that it's for refinement, refinement in our lives. Chapter 33, verses 16 and 17. We already read this, but again, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. In other words, sometimes God uses trial to root out some of those deep layered sins that otherwise wouldn't come out. Uh, when I heard from about this rat under the hood, he was talking about, listen, we, we tried squirting it. I talked to him on the phone after that. He says, we're trying to do all these things to get it out, but it somehow had found its way way underneath the engine compartment and found a, a home, even as the size of a cat, which is scary, but it found a, a home in there, and they couldn't get it to come out without extreme measures. And they weren't ready to go into all of that. And I was thinking about that for a second. Isn't that the same thing as the way God uses suffering in our lives? Sometimes it takes the most extreme measures to pull out some of that hidden sin. You see, Job had come to some false con conclusions about his own self-righteousness and his own pride that he, is, he had determined that God was wrong. It wasn't him. He had come to all these false conclusions that wouldn't otherwise ever had come to the surface. Sometimes it takes some legitimate tools to dig out that stuff. We were, uh, last week I mentioned we're doing this demo over here. We're doing a little bit of a remodel on the other side of this, this wall here where we're putting in a prayer room and redoing some bathrooms. And we decided we'd save a little bit of money by us doing all the demo work. And so we were doing that. A bunch of guys stayed afterwards last Saturday and got a lot of work accomplished. We felt very manly doing it. And uh, I was working in the, the bathroom, and we had been pretty successful getting the toilet out, getting the, the cabinet out, getting some stuff on the walls off, taking, taking out some stuff. And then we were left with this tile on the floor that's been there since like 1962. Anybody ever do one of those home uh, improvement projects and you're like, how in the world do we get this tile out? So we start taking the, these huge hammers and we start like just letting out some like male uh, gusto, like just, just nailing this and trying to break it up. And it was just kind of laughing at us. If Tile could laugh, it was literally laughing and uh, just mocking us. And then finally, one of the guys came out and he's like, try this thing. It was some kind of an apparatus. I'm not a tool guy, but it, it, it pounded and shook at the same time. And it was like two hands onto it. And all of a sudden, 
those tiles are just popping up, you know, like, because why? Because it took some serious machinery, some serious work to drag it out, to get, to get that stuff to come out. And I was thinking about that as this picture that he describes of trial and tragedy in our life, that so often God's like, no, this is going to take some heavy equipment to get that out of his life. If that's going to come out of Dave's life, if that's going to come out of Bill's life, if that's going to come out of uh, Brad's life, if that's going to come out, it's going to take some serious equipment to dig it out, to cause that to finally break loose. And so God uses maybe not his design of tragedy, but he takes what we have in this sinful, broken world, and he's like, all right, I'm going to use that for good use. I would suggest that the idea of like the power tool is probably not the best picture. I think probably more of the instrument of a precise surgeon is a better picture. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's getting out. He knows exactly what has to come out. He knows exactly what, what motives. He knows exactly what heart issues need to be addressed because he's the good physician. He's the good doctor. And his intent in our lives, and this is so key for us to remember is for us to become more like him. He's got our best interest. He's less concerned. Here, this is important if you hear anything. He, he's less concerned about your comfort in your life than he is about your character. Less concerned about your comfort. He's, he's not saying, you know what, I just want them to have just this lovely, beautiful life and never miss a meal. No, he's saying, no, I want them to become more like me and I know it's not going to happen without some bumps and bruises. My hope is for each of us to come to some of the same conclusions about God that Elihu did. In chapter 37, it's really a, a powerful picture. I don't have the time to read through all of it. You can in your own devotion. Kind of the conclusion of his, his summary statements, if you will, just about God's majesty and about how awesome he is. Kind of a, a K-love moment, if you will. He goes through all of these different pictures. Look at these descriptions. He says, he does great things we can't understand. Tuck that in your pocket for later as you're going through tragedy. Consider the wondrous works of God. God is clothed with awesome majesty. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He was somebody that had walked with God enough to understand some of these beautiful truths about Almighty God. What I would suggest for us, one of the primary tools that he uses to teach us to instill these understandings in our mind is this book. In this book. Because when you're going through tragedy and trial, man, if you're not equipped with an appropriate and, uh, and uh, uh, a, a proper understanding of God in the, your worldview, man, you're going to just crumble. But man, when you're deeply rooted in this book, when this has had a chance to do its work in your life, then you're able to withstand these seasons. And they do come, these seasons of trial. I want to end our service with this. I'm going to invite Chad and just Chad up to, to lead a little bit of time of, of music while you're getting a chance to look at a couple New Testament passages as it relates to trial. I think I would suggest that, that the Old Testament doesn't capture it all. I want us to take just 30 seconds with each one of these verses and give you just a chance to reflect on them as God's shaping your worldview 
about suffering. We'll go ahead and put the first one up and just gradually take some time reading these. I thank you for those wonderful reminders that you're worth setting our hope on, that you're worthy of that, that you have such a track record of faithfulness. God, you don't promise that we get to skip all the trial. You promise that you're going to be there with us through it, that you'll sustain us. And I thank you for the hope that we have in this passage. I thank you for the hope that we have in your word. Thank you for this example of Job that we've learned already so much about you through. I pray this morning that you'd meet people where they're at, if they're in the middle of the thick of it, being blindsided, God, that you'd encourage them. You'd remind them of your love and comfort, that you'd draw close to the brokenhearted, even in this room right now. God, we thank you for the understanding that your word brings. I thank you that might not answer all the questions, at least gets us started in thinking and headed down the right directions, God. I ask that you do that in many of our lives, even here this morning, God, shaping our worldview to align with your view. We know that that's only possible, as Elihu mentioned himself, that it's when the Spirit of God is working in us, making sense out of all that. We ask that you do that in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. What a wonderful reminder as we conclude that text. I wanted to just ask two things of you this afternoon as we're leaving. One is this week on Wednesday is John Irwin's birthday, so make sure you tell him happy birthday today as he's leaving. And then secondly, we have a woman who's been connected to our church for a really long time. Her name is Carolyn Poole, and this week is her birthday as well. And she's not here this morning. She's unable to make it because of health issues. And so we set up outside of the service today a table with a bunch of cards. We thought it'd be so fun to just flood her mail with tons of birthday wishes just to encourage her as she's kind of going through a Job series. Are you guys game for that as well? Here's a picture from in the left from 1988, the church directory here. So that's a long time, almost 30 years. So we can bless uh, Carolyn today as we're going. Have a wonderful week. God bless you.